1: And we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call Shift Your Mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Laura Gassner Oding started her career when she dropped out of law school and took a leap of faith to join an unknown southern governor's presidential campaign and ended up as a presidential appointee in Bill Clinton's White House. While there, she helped shape AmeriCorps, which she's going to talk about at the end of our conversation today. We could have talked about it a bunch more, but she drops it in at the end. So stick around for that. She left a leadership role as the youngest vice president at a nationally respected search firm when she realized that her boss's definition of success didn't align with hers, and instead founded and ran one of the fastest growing search firms in the country, partnering with the full gamut of mission-driven executives from startup dreamers to scaling social entrepreneurs to global philanthropists. In 2015, Laura sold that firm to the team who helped her build it both because she was hungry for the next chapter in her life and because she had an audacious dream of electing our nation's first female president. So in today's conversation, we're going to talk a lot about mission, but we're also going to talk about her journey and how she thinks about being polished and being authentic and really defining success for herself and challenging me to do the same. Since that time, Laura has appeared regularly on Good Morning America and The Today Show, and her writing has been seen in Harvard Business Review, Forbes, HR Magazine, and many other publications. She's the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of three books, including Wonder Hell, which we talk a lot about in today's conversation, Limitless, which we also reference a bit, and her other book, Mission Drive. Through her own commitment to give back, Laura has helped build a local Montessori school, co founded a women's philanthropic initiative, advised a startup, National Women's PAC, grew a citizen leadership development program, and completed five charity inspired marathons. We talk about marathons a little bit in today's conversation as well. She is someone who really cares deeply about living her values, making an impact. And we don't actually talk as much about her journey as we do about how she sees the world as a parent, as a speaker, and as a writer. So today we talk about things like authenticity and what it means to be authentic and polished. We talk about the power of polarity. We talk about her profession and her family and the impact that her profession has on her family. We talk about alter egos. So we get into quite a range of things, including death. So we talk about what she's going through at the moment as we recorded this podcast. So I think you're going to love this conversation. So here is LGO, also known as Laura Gassner-Odding. Laura, thank you so much for coming on the podcast when I asked you, hey, what do you love talking about? You actually gave me an interesting perspective, which is you actually don't always love talking about the book. And it's an interesting comment because your book is about this combination of wonderful and hell that comes with success. And so I'm curious for you, as you've been on Good Morning America talking about the book, you've been on probably a million of these podcasts talking about the book. Um, How are you sort of thinking about the context of your book as you are sharing uh, what you've learned throughout the book, how much of it is wonderful and how much of it is also a little bit hellish for you.
0: Yeah. So the conceit of the book is that uh, it is amazing and exciting and humbling and wonderful when we achieve something we didn't know we could achieve. And it could be something huge, like selling your first company or something small, like selling your first consulting contract, your first tube of lipstick. And it's incredible, right? But also in that moment, you see this potential that you didn't know was possible for you. You see this opportunity, this identity that you thought was reserved for others. And, and and in that moment, you can't unsee it. Like you see this like, wow, I sold my first company. Could I sell another? I sold my first tube of lipstick. What if I had 10 people selling tubes of lipstick for me, right? Like you have this moment and you can't unsee it. And in that needing to live up to the burden of this newfound potential, you feel anxiety and stress and uncertainty and exhaustion. And so it's wonderful, but it's also hell. It's wonder hell. And you know, as we were also talking before we started recording, I showed up here 15 minutes late because I had my schedule just in my brain, like my assistant is amazing. The schedule was right. But in my brain, I thought we were recording at 10, not at 10, not at 945. And so I'm sitting here right now with soaking wet hair, uh, you know, fresh out of the shower. My face is still bright red from my workout. And And I would be lying if I didn't say that I'm in a little bit of wonder hell about wonder hell right now. I mean, I literally was in the shower thinking to myself, it's been three states since I washed my hair last, not because I'm disgusting, but because I've been in so many states in the last two days. (laughs) That's sort of like where we are. And so, you know, I love that what you talk about on the show is sort of intentionality, sort of who we are, how we live our lives, how we show up, because it gets really hard sometimes in the chaos of wonder hell to not, you know, lose ourselves in these moments. It's
1: so interesting because I was here at nine fifteen. I was actually here at nine. A. Oh God, m. was I
0: forty five minutes late? Tell no, me. No, was-
1: <laughs> no. But I typically start my clients and the podcast at nine fifteen, and when we had scheduled this, we had scheduled it for nine forty five. And so I'm waiting, and it's nine twenty. And I'm like, "Oh, uh, And I actually had a client call me at like nine thirteen, and I sent it to voicemail and sent them a text and said, "Hey, I'm about to record a podcast." And uh, so, so, and then I look at the calendar, I'm like, "I screwed up." And so, to me, <laughs> but you I screwed mean,
0: up the better way. Let's just put it on the record.
1: <laughs> yeah, it depends how you think about it. Um, but it's interesting you talk about intention because one of the things I appreciate about your work is you're a go-getter. You are an achiever. You are someone who cares about how you perform and how you show up. And I'm sure you don't like being late to anything. And this year for me, I've been in my practice for, I guess this is year 13. And um, every year I've grown and every year I've focused on growing. But this year I, I sort of Stepped back and said, I want to be more sustainable than I want to be focused on growth. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious for you as you are, you know, traveling around, hustling, talking about the book, how do you think about achievement and growth compared to sustainability and the ability to sustain success rather than sprint and then rest and sprint and then rest or sprint and then burn out or, or whatever it might be for other people?
0: Yeah um so uh I am a I'm a marathon runner and I put that in quotes because I'm a, sort of a marathon doer more than a marathon runner uh and you know when you when you train for a marathon e- e- when you do your first marathon you have this idea that you're going to go run 26.2 miles right you're going to get out and you're going to start running you're not going to stop until you finish the race and what i learned um now as i'm starting to train for my 6th marathon is that you're actually not running 26.2 miles, you're running 26.2 individual miles, right? And so each one is a, is a chance to restart. And I think sometimes we think about life as if it's just like super long race, when in fact, and to like, at the risk of sounding like an instafluencer here, um, there are these sort of seasons of our lives, right? So right now I'm in the season of, of, uh, promoting wonder Hell my inbox is chaos. My office is chaos. My health is chaos. Like everything right now is chaos. But I also know that at the end of June, I'm getting on a plane on a family vacation and I may limp onto that plane, but I'm going to get there. And that's sort of the end of this sort of chaotic season. So, you know, the way that I think about it is number one, it's every time we ratchet up the speed and we, and we increase our hunger, we increase our pace. We have to remember that that's not the new normal. That's just the normal for this individual goal for right now. And that goal should be attached to an end point. There is a metric by which I know we're successful. One of the issues that I have is that we define success always as bigger, better, faster, more. And if we're doing that, then we're always getting trapped in the it's not enough, I'll be happy when stage. And every time we start going faster and we see that new potential, we're like, I got to do that thing. I got to do that thing. And we have to remind ourselves that in every age and at every phase, there are different Things that we want to achieve. I mean, I'm looking at your bookshelf behind you and you have pictures of you and your, and your kids. Your kids are not going to be in your house forever. So like this may be the season right now where you spend some time building your business, but you also want to make sure you're there for your kids. Cause like the, the, I can see they're not at the age where they need you all day, every day, but they're at the age where when they need you, they need you and you better be around. So we have to remember that there is a, sort of an end point to each of our sort of periods of hustle, the, each end of each individual mile. And then the second thing is in those moments, how do we take care of ourselves so that we don't actually burn ourselves out? We don't actually go to the end. You know, as I mentioned, I was in three States in the last two days, uh, to, uh, uh, starting, um, on monday of next week i'm going to be over the course of seven days in chicago atlanta austin new york and la with one day in the middle that i'm actually home and on that day that i'm actually home that day on my calendar is blocked off do not schedule i have an appointment with my personal trainer i might actually go get like an iv drip hydration i'm going to get a massage i mean that day is the like okay unpack repack but like also just exhale And so I think we have to, is if you're running a marathon, I know a lot of marathoners who run very fast PR races where they run and then they walk for 30 seconds at the end of every mile. And they do that 26 times over. And I think we just have to remember there are these periods we're going to go faster. And then each one has its own individual. What's the time I want for that mile. And I'm going to now walk for 30 seconds to like reboot for the next one.
1: How old are your kids?
0: My kids now are 18
1: and 20. Do you think you would be able to do what you're doing now? If my kids are six and seven, do you think you'd be able to sprint and hustle and, and go at the level now if, if you were in, in my shoes?
0: Uh, I Not only do I think I could, I did. So when I founded my last company, my, uh, my oldest son was six weeks old, I had had 24 hours and labor in an unplanned C-section. And six weeks later, while I was sitting at my kitchen table with like stranger baby in my arms, like, who are you? This creature who came out of me and I have no idea what on earth I'm doing. I got a phone call from an old friend who I used to work with in the White House. And she said, listen, the president of our organization just resigned. We need a new president. You've been doing executive search for the last four years. Are you still doing it? Because uh we need an executive director. And I was like, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then I literally, she was like, great, send me a contract. And I literally Googled how to write a professional services contract. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no business plan, but I had business. So I started. And so for my kids' entire existence, I've always been hustling and creating and and being an entrepreneur. And not only do I think I could have, and I did, I think that I was a better parent because of it.
1: I look back on my career and I've done some reflection on this up until now and every year I've created something, whether it was a book, a podcast, an assessment tool. It's in your uh, blood. Yeah. Like I and, and it is actually in my blood. My dad's an entrepreneur, my brother's an entrepreneur. Uh, so I have that spirit and I love building stuff. I, I just love starting something and then creating it. Um, sometimes I need help getting to the finish line, but I love the beginning of it and and the process of it. What I'm worried about with sort of thinking about sustainability this year as a focal point is, am I playing it too safe? And there's like this push pull that I battle and I struggle with, which is, I know I love to create stuff. um, But to your point, if I'm, let's use speaking as an example. I got an opportunity to speak in Vermont this morning that came through in the email Um, I might send it over to you, Uh, but I'm playing golf with my family that week in October and we've got a golf tournament planned and uh, I'm really excited to be doing that. And I I find I've filled my calendar a lot with stuff that involves relationships that I care about, whether it's my family or my friends, not just for my kids, but also my parents. I'm fortunate that my parents are still here and and they're aging and I want to spend time with them as well. Um, So, but I wonder if I sometimes am playing it too safe and not fulfilling my potential or not making as big of an impact I could be making. And and that, that battle or that wrestling or that gymnastics goes on inside my head.
0: So I have a lot of thoughts about that, but the question that I would ask you is if you feel like you're playing it too safe and you're not living up to your potential why are you only thinking about that in terms of your professional potential? Because it sounds to me like you're not playing it safe and you are living up to your potential as a parent. And at the end of the day, i lost somebody very, very close to me yesterday. Um, and, sorry about that, and yeah, thank you. Uh, and he was he was the first person to befriend me in a workplace when nobody else would. And he was always the first person to reach out to me to congratulate me when I had a book hit the bestseller list or I was on Good Morning America or any of those things. He was also the first person also to say, and what are you going to do with this platform? What are you going to do with this thing that you've created? And I'll tell you, in the last 24 hours, people have been talking all about him, posting stories on, on, on social media, calling each other, texting each other. Nobody is saying, and man, did he crush it on that talk he gave in Vermont they're talking about how he was a friend, how he was a father, how he was a son, how he was a husband. And I don't think at the end of your life, people are going to say, man, Brian was awesome. He would have been even better if he did that talk in Vermont, skip that golf tournament. Right. So I think we need to give ourselves a little bit of expansiveness on the definition of our potential, because there is potential in our work. Yes. But there's also potential in our homes. And I think we also have to remember that that's going to be the part that impacts people more than anything else.
1: In passing the last 24 hours, how does losing people close to you affect you and how you think about the way you're living?
0: So I had a, I had a, a there's this expression in I'm Jewish and there's a, there's an expression that we have that is may his memory be a blessing. And the first time I heard that expression, when I lost somebody very close to me, like 25 years ago, I remember being really pissed. Like, I don't want his memory to be a blessing. I don't want his memory. I want his presence. And then we all sat around. His name was Eli. And we all sat around and we told Eli stories until the sun came up the next day, laughing and crying. And I mean, just really just remembering. And I got to tell you, Brian, those memories were a blessing. And it, I've just... I've spent a lot of time in the last 24 hours getting text messages from people being like, I'm so sorry for your loss. Like check done. They move on. One friend said, he just texted me. He goes, tell me about your friend, Javier.
1: Mm, That was it. He just asked me that. And I, I,
0: and I, I literally wrote back Javier was the first friend I had when I didn't have any others. And he was the one who always asked me, what I was going to do with the success that I had. Like he was that guy. And he said, tell me something else. And he he went like three and four times, like, give me another story. Tell me. And, and, and I texted him back last night. I said, I just need you to know, this guy's name is Jackie. I'm like, I just need you to know, Jackie. I have been thinking about that question. You asked me all day. And I am from now and forever when somebody loses somebody not going to say, you know, I'm sorry for your loss or may his memory be a blessing, but like, tell me about your friend because just that gift to be able to talk about someone. And, and, you know, those are the things like, what are the things that we remember about people? So, you know, when, when, when I'm dead and dusted, nobody's going to be sitting at my funeral being like, wow, man, that speech she gave really changed my life. They're going to talk about how I was there and I was present. The other thing I want to say is what we've done in our family might be something that you might like to do. We have a thing called the family meeting and we have a family meeting every week and not anymore because you know i've got a high school senior and one in, that that's that's in college but when my kids were 6 and 8 we started doing a family meeting where every weekend we sat down and for 45 minutes we just were there present um And we did a number of things in that meeting. The first thing is we talked about a family value. We just picked some value of something we care about as a family. Like, you know, we like to try new things or we're open-minded or uh, we're adventurous or like whatever the thing is, which is like a family value. And then we would do like an airing of gratitudes and we'd sort of go around and be like, Hey, Brian, I saw this week that, you know, you worked extra hard to, you know, do that thing for that client and, you know, record those extra podcasts. And I know it was hard for you, but I really like, good on you for like working hard. That's awesome. Or you might look at your kid and be like, Hey, you know, I know that, uh, that I know that you were really scared to go out for that soccer team and you tried out. And even though you didn't make it, like, I'm so proud of you for trying a new thing. Like we just sort of catch each other being good. Then we, would then we go around and we just do like planning, like who's where on what day, like who's home for dinner each night. Like, what do we want to have for, for, for those dinners? Um, things like, Uh, if you need new cleats for the soccer game, like somebody needs a, you know, new suit for the bar mitzvah, like whatever the thing is, we would talk about that stuff. And then there was some long range planning. Like we're going on a trip to Japan and like, what do people want to do? Do we want to do like, you know, see the sword creation or the sumo wrestling, or we want to go to temples. Like we just like, so we're all, we all have like a a say, and then we do the airing of grievances and that's where shit gets real. (laughs) Like the airing of grievances is like, yeah, mom, you know, you were really awesome. Except when you were having a hard time last week with your chapter that was due, you kind of. Took it out on us by being a little, you know, testy. Is there anything that we can do next time when we see that you're in that mood to maybe support you better? Right. So it's not the like yelling in the moment. We wait till the irons get cold, right? You don't strike while the iron's hot. You wait till the irons get cold. And then it becomes a teachable moment in the family about like, here's how we deal with conflict. Here's how we, here's how we have a system of how to apologize to each other. You know, here's how we um, can remember things. There was a family meeting where my kids were like, yeah, mom, you remember when you forgot to pick us up on Thursday? <laughs> Like, that's not okay. How do we figure that out? And then we schedule the next family meeting. And it's just this great opportunity for your kids to be intentional performers in the home so that they feel like they have agency and they have a say. And also, when you feel like you're flying in a million different directions and your kids are like, oh, by the way, I need new cleats or I need a new suit for the bar mitzvah, you can say, that'd be a great thing to bring up in a family meeting. So then you don't get home and forget about it. And suddenly you're like, oh my God, I'm the worst dad ever, right? And it suddenly gives everybody a responsibility and agency for themselves.
1: What were your kids' reaction when you first wanted to start the family meetings?
0: Uh, They rolled their eyes a little. (laughs) They were not so sure. The meetings were, uh, they were 45 minutes. We started them off much shorter. Um, But we also talked about the idea of doing it by, by, seeing their problem you know how sometimes you get frustrated because i'm late to pick up or you know how sometimes i we were running around the last minute because we forgot to pick up the cleats what if we did something so that maybe we could be a little bit more organized maybe that and they were like oh yeah that would be great right so we we didn't present it as like okay mom's having a hard time here keeping all the you know balls in the air we presented it as i know you're frustrated and like you want to have a little bit more say like you know, our kids think they live in a democracy, but it's really a benign dictatorship, right? So we're like, we know you want feeling you have a little bit more say in this, in in the community that's our family. Here's a, here's a way we might do it. And they were like, okay, okay, we'll try it. And then we said, great. You know, like we, we, we created the agenda together, but really we like kind of helped them figure out how to get to the agenda. And then we let them run the meetings. And so they just felt like, awesome, finally, like, I'm not just like, you know, a peon in this godforsaken hellhole of a house, like I actually have some say. And you know, there's nothing a six or eight year old wants more than to actually feel like they've got some say over like, oh, what's for dinner Tuesday? Mac and cheese? How about mac and cheese? Awesome, mac and cheese, great.
1: Oh, they, they have say in my house, but <laughs> it's just a matter of if the dictators decide to hold their ground or not. I'm thinking well, we about- could
0: give them, <laughs> we could actually give them very specific things where they got say, so they feel like they had say on some things. So that when we didn't give them plan, other things, they they were okay. So,
1: I'm thinking in my head though about my family, and I grew up with two brothers, and we did have family meetings. But as I'm thinking about them, they were not consistent, and uh, a lot of times they were somewhat reactive. And mm-hmm. I can remember thinking, "Oh no, we have to go to a family meeting, and it's going to be about something." negative, I might be wrong about that. That might be just me in my head thinking about them. But I can remember my parents being like, we're going to have a family meeting. And maybe it wasn't negative as much as it was serious. Um, And perhaps you are bringing some lightness to the communication that you're having with your family. And um, I'm also curious about a lot of my clients who, like I just read an article about how a company is just getting rid of meetings. Wednesdays, we're not having any meetings. Like people are sick of meetings in the workforce. And I know you spend a lot of time in the corporate world as well. I'm curious about as you talk about your family and the importance and the and the the agenda. Right? It's not just a free flowing open meeting. It sounds like there are intentional questions and thoughtful yes. questions. How do you? How does that resonate with people when you talk to corporate clients about how to run effective meetings?
0: Well, so on the family meeting, it is regular. I mean, look, if you were at, if you were on the board of a company and the board never had executive session, right, where the CEO wasn't there, and then suddenly you were having an executive session, what would the CEO think? The CEO would think, I better go polish my resume. I'm getting fired, right? So- if you have a regular executive session at the end of every meeting, then it's never a scary thing, right? People don't come already like loaded for, loaded, you know, loaded for bear. They don't come already defensive. So the fact that we had this meeting every weekend, and sometimes we'd have the meeting sitting in like the lounge in an airport if we were flying home from somewhere and it was just like a 15 minute, let's just do logistics for the week. So, you know, we 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 always try to keep it light. And because the meeting started out with people being in the sort of happy space, it, it wasn't this like we need to have a family meeting about you know the way that you're bringing the car back after curfew like it wasn't a it wasn't this uh it wasn't this punitive thing it it was really an opportunity for our kids to be equal parts of this community of upholders of this community uh so they 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 always were happy with it because they knew that they were getting something out of it. Right now you would never run a company and not say, we need to have a meeting from time to time about like, are we getting towards where we want to get to? we getting to our goals. You have some goals as your family, right? You have goals about how you want to raise your kids, the kinds of people that they want to be, the kinds of father you want to be the kind of parent you want to be. Why do we think that we could do that in this family without checking in with each other every once in a while? So it's a check-in moment in terms of companies you know, we had an agenda for our family meeting. That's why it went well. I won't take in a meeting with my assistant unless she has an agenda for the meeting because it's just inefficient. It doesn't make any sense to do it. And mostly what I tell people is any meeting that you have, A, has to have an agenda, B, can probably be half the amount of time that you think it is, and C, has to have very specific to do's that come out of the meeting afterwards, right? Like there needs to be like, and what do we do now at the end of the meeting? And if the meeting doesn't have a, and what do we now we do now, then everybody forgets about it and it ends up being a waste of time.
1: Yeah, I know you have a relationship with Michael Bungay Stanier, and Mm -hmm. I think he does a, a good job of democratizing coaching. And in coaching, we talk about at the end of our session, hey, what do you want to commit to between now and our next meeting? And also at the end of a coaching session, what did you learn? What did you learn about yourself? What did you learn about your community or your environment or your ecosystem or your team? And so those closing parts of a meeting are are so, so crucial. I want to go back to parenting a little bit because in Limitless, your other book, um, in your acknowledgement section, which is my favorite part of books, especially when I prep for podcast guests. There's a story in there about thanking your parents for letting you sort of take a leap of faith uh, to go support some guy from Arkansas as he was running for president and. um I'm curious as we flip the switch and your kids now are in a similar time period that it sounds like you were in when you made that decision. um, How do you think about your parents? I'm going to call it flexibility and their ability to let you go pursue that um, when perhaps there was other things on the docket for you at the time. Um, How did you take that lesson and how does that influence your parenting style with your kids?
0: Oh, it influences my parenting style every single day. In fact, it's very funny. I spoke uh, in Florida on Tuesday. I did a a gig for like 1,100 legal marketers. And my parents live about a half hour from where the the hotel is, where I was doing the event. And my parents had never seen me speak before. And so they actually came to see me speak. And in the keynote, I actually tell the story about dropping out of law school to join this guy's presidential campaign. And I was like, sorry, mom and dad. (laughs) And, and it's like, a, you know, it's, it's a bit that I do. It's part of like this whole 10 minute opening of my hour long keynote where I talk about, uh, you know, we, we, we are frustrated because we are so busy filling in everyone else's boxes on everybody else's definition of success. And when we get there, they're like, okay, I got there, but like I'm at the top of the top of what? And so it's this whole bit that I do about where our definitions of success came from. And of course I talk about my parents and my grandparents and teachers and bosses and the Kardashians and all these people. And on the ride back, to the airport after the gig. I was, I was like, I was like, so how'd you feel about that little opening, opening uh story? And they were like, well, I mean, it's true. It wasn't your definition of success. It was ours. And uh I, I say, you know, I said, I have to tell you, I've I've dined out for 20 years on that story of this one rare moment of flexibility that you guys had. And my mom was like, yeah, flexibility was not our strong suit <laughs> at all. So it was very funny. We actually just had this conversation on uh, uh on Tuesday about this. I have decided that in parenting, you basically get to make one decision. And you get to make that one decision over and over and over and over. But you get one decision, and that is the only decision you make as a parent, and it's this. You either get on their bus or you get run over by their bus. And There's really nothing in between. You may not like their bus. You may not like where their bus is going. You may be horrified about where the bus is going, but you cannot stop their bus if you're getting run over by their bus. So you got to figure out how to get on the bus. If you're on the bus long enough, eventually they may ask you to change to this radio station. They may ask for directions. They may ask you to, you know, help them change a tire, but you can't do that if you're being dragged along, holding onto the bumper, right? So you make that decision. And I think my parents in that moment decided to get on the bus and it was maybe the, it was definitely the first, it was maybe the only time that they've ever done that. But in raising my own kids, I I, I have learned that you know, they kind of come out of the womb about 90% of the way who they are, right? Like I'm a big believer in, you know, nature versus nurture. It's, it's nature. And then there's 5% on either end that you can screw up and you can really screw it up. Right. But there's really only like 5% on either end and they're just their own people. And you can either force them to be the people that you want them to be, and then not have a relationship with them, or you can enjoy the adventure. And, you know, for me, my kids have, there have been times where my kids have done things where I'm like, they're going to get hurt and this might be bad. And, you know, if if it's like, you know, alcohol, drugs, you know, like there are, there are reasons where you step in, but like for most of us, it's like, you don't like the major. You don't like the college. You don't like the trade. You don't like that. They got to figure it out. They got to figure out who they're going to be.
1: What was it like to have your parents in the audience? What, How did that make you feel having them in the audience?
0: Well, I didn't let them sit in the front row. My mother was like, okay, well, we'll go in now. We'll get a seat front row center. I'm like, no, you won't. <laughs> no, no, you won't. My husband about five years ago watched me speak and he sat in the very front row and it was the first time I'd ever given the, the keynote from Limitless. And he had been watching me for the previous weeks, like pacing in our backyard, like giving the talk to myself. And so he sat in the front row. And the entire time I, I was kind of like ad libbing a little and going off script a little. And the entire time he was making this face, he was like staring up at me with this like super confused face the entire time, horrified, confused, uncertain. And afterwards I was like, what was wrong? Like, was there food in my teeth? Like, what was going on? He's like, no, he's like, it was just different than what I'd heard you rehearse. I was just curious where you were going. And I was like, dude. You can never do that again. He goes, oh, he goes, okay. He goes, I won't make the face next time I sit in the front row. And I'm like, no, 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 you're never sitting in the front row ever again. So with my parents, I was like, yeah, you can sit in like row six or seven, which is like just beyond the the, the lights, right? So like if you're speaking to a thousand people, the room is lit up a lot. You you can only really see the first three or four rows of of faces. And after that, it's all kind of shadows. So I was like, you need to sit beyond the shadow line. It was really lovely having them there. It was um this is a very strange job, the sort of public speaking job. And at the afterwards, we were we were driving back to the airport, as I said, and they had bought a thousand books, you know, to, for everybody in the audience. And my mom was like, "So, okay, so they buy books, and and that's how they pay you?" And I was like, "No, mom, they 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 pay me money, <laughs> and they also buy books." And they just, she just didn't understand that this was even a job, that this could even be a thing. And it was very cute. Um, they were they were they were very proud of me, and uh, it was. It was very nice to be able to perform in front of them, you know. I, I I I'm really grateful that they were able to come, and grateful to my client that they allowed them to be there.
1: It's interesting you were talking about nature and nurture earlier. Uh, for me, I'm in the world of psychology, so nurture, nurture, nurture. Like that's what we do. Yes. And then, yeah. And then I had kids, <laughs> and I and to your point about 95, I don't know what the percentage split in my head is, but my belief in nature was completely transformed once I had two kids that were born 14 months apart, that nature-wise, they are just so, so different. Um, and I heard this saying, uh, it was actually in a book called uh, Peak Performance by Steve Magnus and Brad Stolberg, um, and they said, nurture your nature. And I just thought that was a beautiful way to think about it, and it's just yes. what you're talking about. Uh, I'm curious, have have your kids also sat in and and watched you speak? And and the reason I'm asking that is because this morning, I had a moment where I appreciated my son's nature. He was watching me work out. I work out with a trainer twice a week. And that trainer brought their daughter because it's take your kid to work day. And so he brought his daughter along. And so she was helping, you know, kick my ass. And then <laughs> I said to my son, I go, why don't you come down? You know, they're like two or three years apart. I'm like, you come down too and you can help. And so they all watched me suffer uh together. But have you have your kids got to experience you uh, speaking as well?
0: Uh they have gotten to experience me lecturing them. <laughs> they have not gotten to experience <laughs> uh, they that's an interesting question. I they saw me. Uh, they saw me give the very first talk of my life, which was a TEDx that I gave in 2016. Um, my older son saw me speak at Harvard once, like in 2017. But they really, they really haven't. Um, they've come with me to events, but they've kind of just like pieced out and like hung out in the city wherever I was. I think they feel like they get enough of my they get enough of my motivational lectures at home. They don't really need it. People always ask me, they're like, oh my God, your kids must be so set up for success. Like it must be so great to have you as like a professional coach and a speaker and a, you know, right there in the house of them. And I'm like, yeah, the, the subtitle of my first book, Limitless starts off with how to ignore everybody. <laughs> so yeah, they've, they've, they've done pretty, they've done pretty well in that. I will say this. I was, I was, uh, out in Vancouver with my older son last summer and we were hiking and he was having sort of a an existential crisis about what he wanted to major in. And he was going to switch from like mechanical engineering to like graphic design and art. So like a pretty massive shift. And he's talking me through it. And of course I've spent 20 years in executive search. I've coached thousands of people through massive moments of life shift and organizational disruption. And so I start, I just jump on in and I start coaching him. And at one point, and he's doing the like, uh-huh, Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Which, you know, was like teenage for like, shut the hell up, mom. Like, I'm ignoring you. Like, are you going to get to the end already? And at one point he stopped and looks at me and he goes, mom, he's like, I really don't need LGO right now. He's like, I just need my mom to tell me everything's going to be okay. And I was like, oh my God, everything's going to be okay. And I hugged him and I started to cry. And I realized that most of the people in our lives don't want solutions they just want company in their misery for a little while they just want to be seen and they just want to be appreciated for how hard they're struggling and how hard they're working to get through it and then they want solutions right and it was just this really good like okay stop see him honor him and then ask him if he's ready to start thinking about maybe brainstorming some solutions.
1: If you ever want him to chat with someone, you can you can connect him with me. I was a lost puppy in college and did not know my major and was lost out of college as well. And yes. some, somehow, because I was lost, was able to get found. Um, but LGO, you mentioned this. And I think about the idea of like an alter ego for, for yeah. us. And you- based on all my research, tend to lean into that, especially you, Matt, you said, Hey, I'm performing when I'm on stage yes. uh, and, and your parents and your kids have, have gotten to see that whether they in a Ted talk or in front of a thousand people or so. Um, how does this idea of like an alter ego help you? Obviously it got in the way there in, communicating with your son who just wanted you to be the mom. And we hear that a lot with psychologists, like, don't shrink your kids. Like, don't Mm -hmm. like they just need a dad or a mom, or, you know, they don't need you to be a a psychologist. Um, so tell, tell us about LGO though, and where there's value in leaning into an alter ego and there's value into transforming yourself when you are competing or performing or doing what you do.
0: Yeah. So I think one of the things that people get wrong about the alter ego is they think it's a fake until you make it thing, right? Like I'm just going to like be this other person, period. And maybe one day I'll be that person. And I think fake until you make it is terrible because it, in the end, you even if you make it, you've made it on this sort of faked thing. That's not really you. What I like about, the, you know, what I do with LGO is like, there is a part of me who is just, you know, awkward and filled with moxie and just like doesn't know how to act in front of human beings, but will just say what she thinks and just goes all in, right? Like that's just my, like, that's just my brand. I'm just like a punch in the face wrapped in a warm hug filled with a whole bunch of like spastic moxie. Like that's just me. And I am that person sometimes, but I'm not that person all the time my audiences love that person because they think I am 100% there in the moment. And I am just full on like committed and, and, and uh, just passionate about what I'm saying. So I have to find LGO and bring her out in those moments. Just like in, when I was walking with my son in the woods in Vancouver, I had to find mom and like bring her back up to the surface. So the alter ego and, you know, Todd Herman writes a lot about this. The alter ego isn't, you know, Beyonce wasn't not Sasha Fierce and Lady Gaga, you know, Stephanie Germanata wasn't not Lady Gaga. She just you're not that way all the time. I'll tell you this, my I just did this new speaker reel, and on the speaker reel, you know, a lot of times I get on stage and I wear bright yellow from head to toe, and you can't play small when you're wearing bright yellow from head to toe, so that helps a lot, right? So I, I, my speaker reel uh, gets finished, and I show it to my younger son who's who's 18, and it's like boom, 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 but like Laura Gassner on it, right? This, this whole like big giant production, me walking out in front of 5,000 people in Limitless Yellow. And I'm like, hello. And he just starts cackling, like cackling the entire time. He's watching four minutes of a speaker reel. And like, I think I might have to take him to the hospital. He's laughing so hard. I think he's going to like rupture his spleen. And I'm like, what's so funny? And he goes, he goes, who is that? (laughs) Who is that person? He said, this is why my friend's parents are intimidated by you because they think you're LGO. They think you like our home on a Tuesday night, like cooking spaghetti in your limitless yellow. He's like, who are you? So I am that person. I'm just not always that person. And I think I think it's really important to figure out who we are when we're at our best. There's this article that I read like about 20 years ago in Harvard Business Review about the the fundamental state of leadership. And it's, you know, who are you when you are your very best? You are just crushing it. You're making it rain. You're closing the deal. Or maybe you're like in quiet in the back figuring out a PowerPoint presentation or working on, a, on an Excel spreadsheet or you're helping a loved one through a quiet moment of like really difficult stuff, it doesn't matter if it's loud or quiet or public or private. It just has to be you, like you in your best form. And they call that the fundamental state of leadership. And if we write down on a piece of paper or on the lock screen of our phone or on our you know, rear view mirror, mirror in our car who we were in that moment and what words we were using, what energy we had and what we were wearing and who we were talking to and how we were living in our body. And when we write that down and we lean into that every single day, we can actually become that person more and more and more often. And so what I did is I was very intentional about figuring out who am I when I'm LGO. I am fearless. I am open. I have broad body language. I enunciate all of my words. I go all in and I commit to the bit. Like it's a, that, that is who I am. those moments and i can bring that to the stage so i am lgo on stage that's the performance version of me when i'm coaching i'm very much not that person i'm quiet i listen i ask questions i don't have the answers i sort of give people these catalyzing questions that guide them to find their own answers when i'm mom it's very different also i sort of i'm sort of present but I'm not the star of the show, right? So I think we have to figure out who our alter egos are in all the different forms of our lives. But for me, that's sort of where LGO came from, is this, Laura is an a, a awkward introvert. LGO is like, share. <laughs> and they're very different humans.
1: The word authenticity, I think people think it's rigid. And I think it's actually the opposite. It's, it's flexible. It's about- yes being who you are when you need to be that way and uh, i think we get authenticity wrong a lot like being a jerk all the time that's not authentic you're being a jerk and uh and for you though it's interesting because i heard you say i'd rather be actually you know stage left than center stage Yes. Uh, but your job requires you to be center stage and you're talking about that. Yes. What do you do when you feel like, man, I just, I'd rather be in the shadows. I'd rather be, say just, even with promoting a book, right? Ugh, like yeah. you have to be center stage. You got to talk to me about you <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> during this conversation. What do you do when you don't feel like being center stage and you feel like being in the shadows or, or being in the audience or being stage left? What do you do to muster up that alter ego or the energy or the, uh, intensity needed to be center stage.
0: Yeah. Well, I actually, you mentioned Michael Bungay Stanier earlier. And so, uh, LGO MBS, I go to MBS and I'm like, all right, man, ha- ha- how do I do this? And he reminded me very early on in my speaking career that I might be center stage, but the audience is the star. He's like, it is not about you. They're going to forget your name tomorrow but they're going to remember the message that you gave, right? Like it is about the message. You are just a vehicle for the message. And so I have to remind myself all the time that nobody cares about me, right? Nobody cares about me. Like Eleanor Roosevelt once said, if if, if we, you would worry much less about what other people thought about you if you realized how seldomly they did, right? Like people just aren't walking around thinking about me all day. But I hope that what they hear from me, what they read from me, I, I I hope that that helps them to maybe get out of their own way a little bit and achieve what it is that they want to achieve to be the fullest version of themselves. So I, even when I want to be like my favorite place, as you mentioned is stage left. Absolutely. But I can still be in center stage and be stage left. If I remember that my audience is really center stage, that it's really all about them. When I'm on stage and I'm telling a story about how I found my definition of success from the parent or the teacher or the boss, I'm telling that story because I'm telling it in a way that I'm bringing people into the moment so that they can see themselves talking to the parent or the teacher or the boss. And that's that to me is is you know, why I call speaking performing, because there's sort of these tricks that you use. So I'm not just giving someone a lecture. I'm not just putting up a slide with bullets. I'm bringing people into a moment so that they can imagine it for themselves. At this gig on Tuesday, at one point, a woman in the front row, like reached into her bag and started like wiping tears on her face. And I was like, yes, awesome. Not because I was like, I made her cry, but I was like, I touched her emotions like she nobody you don't cry for someone else you cry because you feel it inside of yourself and 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 to me that is such a gift that the audience gives to me and such a burden that I feel like I need to fulfill every single time but I think we have to remember that you know it's it's not about us it, it's really about what we do for others and this is you know my friend Javier who who I mentioned passed away on Monday he um uh uh he 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 was always the first one to ask, you know, what are you doing with this gift that you've been given? And I think that that's what we have to do as as managers, as leaders, as parents, as friends, as speakers. It's just to remember that people are being affected by the things that we say. And we have to remember that we got to be saying it for them and about them because they're making changes based on that.
1: As I planned that with your, I think it was your son's perspective that. Some of the parents see you as intimidating. Was the word that you're yes. using? I'm curious about that word, uh, especially for a woman. And mm-hmm. well, I've had the pleasure of working with a lot of women in in the corporate world, and women in sports, and women. From what I've heard, and let's just generalize a whole gender here. Yeah, um, why not? But, but that word, intimidating, or. The word badass or the word fierce, um, like these are words that I'm curious always to get a woman's perspective on those words. And when when you get described as intimidating, how does that impact you? And we've talked about your identity, like you wear a lot of different hats. You have a lot of these different pieces to who you are, but one of the pieces is as a woman. Um, how do you think about that word intimidating as it connects with uh, you as a woman?
0: I mean, I think it is absolutely loaded with all sorts of, you know, misogyny and and uh, and I don't love it as a woman. But what I have, you know, nobody ever says that men are intimidating. They say men are, you know, go getters and ambitious and ambition, of course, is another word that we killer. give to women. Like they even say that yeah. guy's
1: a killer. That guy's right.
0: a killer. Yeah, that guy's <laughs> a shark. That guy, Right. But a woman. Yeah, that's not the word they use for women. So. there's not really much that I can do about that word, but I can use it as a superpower, right? I can use it as a superpower because I can say, okay, if all of these people think that I'm intimidating, then that means they're intimidated by me. And if they're intimidated by me, then I can shock them when I show some vulnerability. I can shock them when I can tell them what I'm really going through. I can shock them when I tell them, that things are hard. And when they feel shocked by that, their reaction is, I had no idea. I didn't know she went through that also. I didn't know she dealt with that too. And what I can do with that is I can both allow them to feel like they're not alone, but I can also show them that there is a pathway to get from wherever they are today to whatever fancy thing they think that they've assigned to me as like what I am. And it allows me to be, both inspirational and relatable at the same time. And that's really the line I try to walk. I got a I got a DM actually after this gig on Tuesday from a woman who said, i got to tell you, I laughed, I cried, I was totally caught off guard. That was amazing. But what I'm really texting you about right now is that I really need to know who makes your pants because those pants are amazing. And I'll tell you, I saw that as like the biggest victory ever because this woman sat in the in, in, in the audience and I touched her in a way that she had an emotional reaction and at the same time thought, thought that I was relatable and approachable enough that she could ask me who makes my pants. Like that's a win in my book. That's brought, a win.
1: You brought up attire a couple of times and we're in a world now. I used to always have a button down shirt if I was doing pretty much anything, especially if I was presenting to an audience on zoom, I would, I did that before the pandemic. Now, like even our conversation right now, if we were having this three or four years ago, I would have had a polo shirt on and now I'm wearing like a long t-shirt Yes, uh, attire as you're seeing the world sort of change how we dress and how we show up. It seems like that's something that you've been pretty intentional about and thought about, you know, you mentioned yellow and that's also the color of your book. Um, What are your thoughts on attire, especially as we think about how we present in the workforce? And um, I'm just curious to get your perspective on it.
0: Uh, You know, I mean, I think it's I think attire, and I'm no expert on this, uh, I but I think attire really drives a lot of feeling of culture and community and belonging. And um, you know, I, I am I am sort of a I'm kind of a weird formal prig about certain things like I still like dress up when I go to the theater you know like we will we'll, we'll take a trip down to New York and we'll go to Broadway and everybody's there in their jeans and I'm like a little dressy because I just I don't know like I don't dress up to go on airplanes anymore but I used to um so I just I just feel like it's it's a sign of respect for the performers to like go and you know to 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 be there and take it seriously, but I think as as a leader, I think it, there is a real intentionality about how we set the culture about how we show up what we look like how we put ourselves together the respect with which we show our colleagues and in some places that's I'm showing up in a t-shirt and jeans and in some places it's I'm showing up in a you know in, in a full suit but it really depends on the culture and 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 where we are i mean you know my my husband works in the finance industry and he wears a t-shirt and jeans every day to work he, he sits on a trading desk and wears a t-shirt and jeans and a friend of ours who's a pediatrician one day like 15 years ago saw him like he she was here over when when he came home from work and she looks at him. and She was like, "You wear that to work?" He was like, "Yeah." And he he literally says, "But how do you make money dressed that way?" <laughs> and he was like, the, "The the the bonds don't know what I'm wearing." Like <laughs> it's just like it's like what? <laughs> so you know, for me, it comes down to branding. You know, my branding is this like badass and I'm a force of nature. And then when I, I stride onto stage and, you know, I also work out with a trainer a couple times a week, so, you know, I'm fit and I'm put together and my clothes are impeccable. And then I immediately tell a story about being so sick in 2021 that I almost didn't make it to 2022 and boom, relatable, right? So it, it is this combination of, oh, who's that? Oh, I want to know more, right? And I think I think people, for better or for worse, and especially for women, make judgments about us based on the first, like, what, eight seconds or something after they see us. Do I like her? Do I want to hear more? Can I trust him as my coach? Like, what are the things that people are thinking about? And a lot of that comes down to to attire. I had a, a coaching client who called me two years ago and she said, I saw your TEDx, the first one I did, and you were wearing this, you know, bright blue couture dress. And I was like, she is polished. I want to learn how to be polished. I'm going to hire her. Like she literally hired me because of the dress I was wearing. So I do think for better for worse, I do think it does matter. And I think it could be that it's the t-shirt and jeans is the right decision. It could be that the couture dress is the right decision, but it really comes down to being intentional about what kind of culture and community we're trying to create.
1: I literally have polish underlined. Uh, these are my notes as I think about what questions to ask you. I I, I have like a. But story. I will say, like yeah. at the
0: same time, you know, when my my book came out in in early April, and so six weeks before is my birthday, February 15. I sat on my desk, like right behind me, in a t-shirt and overalls with a giant sheet cake, which I love. I love. Like the cheaper the supermarket cheesecake, the better. Like I'm just disgusting. I love it. And I sat on my desk with like the camera on me, housing a cake like Tina Fey style from from you know Sarah Net Live. And I was just like, my book comes out in six weeks, and I'm so freaked out. If it's my birthday, and I'm here's what I'm asking. And I'm like shoving cake into my face the entire time. And please pre order the book. And I just like one cake, one take put it out on social media. And another speaker friend of mine called me up and he was like, Laura, he's like, you need need to take, he's like, I'm just calling as a friend. I want to give you some advice. Right. You need to take that down because that's not you. He's like, everything you have is so polished and so put together. That's not you. People are going to freak out. That's not your brand. I was like, dude, you don't know my brand. If you think that's not my brand, like anybody who follows me on social sees that it's like the combination of this, like super polished, but also I'm like a real human. And, and what was amazing about that is I was like, but by the way, thank you for giving me fodder for my next newsletter. My next loser, I sent it out. And I was like, if you missed the cake video, because I got like a second bite of the apple or second bite of the cake, if you will. I was like, if you missed the cake video, here it is. And also I got some unsolicited feedback about it. And here's what it was. And that just reminded me that we should just be us, right? We have to be authentic. And I can be this authentic person on stage where I'm super polished because I take my clients seriously, but I can also tell stories about housing a cake on social media. And I got more responses from that newsletter than I think any newsletter in the previous year with people like, I have never related to anybody as much as I related to you sitting on your desk in your overalls, housing that cake. Thank you for posting it. So I think we just have to be comfortable with who we are and know that we can give, we can be a hundred percent public about a specific part of our life. We don't have to be hundred percent public of everything. That's not authenticity. You can, I'm a hundred percent public with like 40% of my life, but I'm all in on that. And I think the the combination of like being polished and being intimidating and combining that with like, and also here's who I am as a real person, really uh, the, the the two of them really have this sort of kindling spark that that can light a fire for people to, to be excited about your work.
1: I love the power of polarity. And when I hear you talk- That's a better just, way to
0: say it. Yes.
1: I just hear the polarity. And I got feedback once when I gave a talk that I was not polished and- you know, I had to wrestle with that. And I thought about it. And I said, because all the other feedback was, oh, he's so authentic. And I felt like he was talking to me and there was all this great stuff. But to your point, I should become more polished. I should be more thoughtful about how I'm expressing my information and the words that I'm choosing and how I'm delivering that content. And that doesn't have to take away from my authentic message and Having the range to be both polished and authentic, it that mixture it sounds like is what resonates with people that are following you as well.
0: That mixture resonates with people following me. It may not, it may not resonate with people following you. I mean, Michael Bungay Stanier gets on stage in these crazy, you know, you know, uh, gaudy like glaring uh, uh, shirts and, and they're amazing, but I couldn't pull those off, right? Like if I did it, it would be gaudy on him. It's like bold, right? It's just very different. Uh, a dear friend of mine, Scott Stratton, he, he has his you know hair pulled back in a man bun. He wears a black t-shirt. He wears black jeans. He's covered in head to toe and tattoos. And every time he, he walks out, uh, he walks into a gig for sound check. They're like, Oh, the sound check is, uh, the, the AV guys are back there. Like everyone thinks he's an AV guy. But that guy crushes it like 150 talks a year. So it may not be that you need to be more polished. You just may need to be more you. I don't know that it's a problem with polish. I think a lot of people who are told they're not polished are people who are just not living fully into whatever it is that they want to do. So Scott lives fully into looking like the AV dude. MBS goes fully into being the like crazy, you know, six foot five skinny Australian dude who, you know, challenges you to think differently. I lean fully into being LGO. I think it's figuring out who you are and leaning fully into that. And if polish, quote unquote, polish is the thing that you want to lean into, then great. But I don't I don't know. I I mean I guess maybe I push back a little bit on that.
1: And and I think a couple of things. One, for me, I'm actually not looking to do a lot of keynotes and not looking to be on the road and and do that whole thing. And then for our audience, as people are listening to this, I do think there's something interesting about uh, how we all show up. And I remember I sold ice cream. It was one of my first jobs out of college and I'd have ice cream. I'd have a freezer in my trunk and I'd go to restaurants and grocery stores and try to sell them ice cream. And the guy who onboarded me, the other ice cream sales rep, he was uh, an actor and he talked about, hey, how I dress, how I show up. And, and he was very casual. So he wore jeans and a t-shirt. Whereas for me, I was right out of college and I was like, no, no I'm going to wear a, a polo or a button down. And But his point, that has stayed with me, his name is Ben, uh, is like, you need to be intentional and thoughtful about how you're showing up and then mm-hmm. own whoever you are. And I think that's what you're saying before we close, there was a thread there that I don't want to skip over, which is, it's amazing. Cause you do have this range where one moment we're talking about what you're wearing and the next moment we're talking about your friend Javier. And I think that is beautiful. And you mentioned, I think I think you had an autoimmune disease Mm -hmm. and you didn't know if you would make it to 2022. And I can't just let that skip over us (laughs) um, and and end with me talking about ice cream. And so it's interesting because I don't go into these conversations thinking that we're going to talk about death. And certainly with you, I didn't think about that, but you brought what you're going through over the last 24 hours into this conversation, which I'm really grateful for. And I'm curious about what you went through from a health standpoint. It was on one of my pre-questions, so I guess I was maybe interested in death. But how did that experience impact how you show up today?
0: Oh, gosh. Um, I, you know, there is nothing like circling the drain to, <laughs> to, to give you some perspective about um what you wanna do and how you wanna show up in the world. And uh, when I was diagnosed with this autoimmune disease, which is a very rare disease that only 800 people in the entirety of the 330 million in the United States have, Uh, it was a sort of this mystery of like, what is it? It took 32 blood tests, four biopsies, a chest X-ray to figure out what it was. And then, you know, months to even figure out a treatment, which was like this weird off-label treatment. I was so sick at this time that I signed the, uh, the release for the treatment that when the doctor was like, yeah, you've got like a 40% chance of stroke, a 20% chance of death. I was like, sign me up. And can you stick the IV in my arm today? Right. I was like, I'm ready. Let's go. Anything is better than this. I, uh, I, I. In that moment, I actually signed up for uh, another marathon (laughs) because I'm insane, but also because I figured I was either going to be able to run 26.2 miles six months from them, or I'd be six feet under, and there wasn't going to be much in between. I also went home that afternoon, and I opened up my laptop, and I started writing Wonder Hell because I am at my core a mother, a daughter, a sister, but I'm also an athlete, and I'm also a writer. And it became very clear to me in that moment what uh, what identities I held most sacred. I have spent a lot of time in my life raising money for politicians, active in campaigns. You mentioned you know, a a governor from Arkansas um, ending up in the White House, but one of the things that fell away in that time was actively raising money for candidates and causes that I cared about. And I really, it, it, it was amazing and I'm back to doing it now, but it was amazing in that moment how when everything fell apart, the pieces that I picked up became the sort of true tent poles of my identity. What I actually cared most about being present for my family, expressing myself in words, uh as you know if you wrote the read the acknowledgement of the book it says that I wrote you know 85,000 of the worst words you'll ever read during that period and then I picked it up and you know rewrote the book in 2022 when I was when I was better so I promise there's 64,000 good words if you're listening please by wonder hell it's not crap um, but that, that that moment of who am I at my core really became clear to me in a way that, in hindsight, it was quite a gift to have that in midlife, knowing that I have a very long and healthy life ahead of me where I can dedicate my energy towards the things that actually do matter.
1: It's beautiful. And where I thought we'd end is looking forward. So... I think I saw this on your Instagram or I don't know if I read in the book. It's all blurry to me. It all blends (laughs) together. But you talk about this idea of institutions and cathedrals Mm, and the mm -hmm. idea that an institution lives beyond you as a cathedral goes away when you're gone. Um, As you think forward, and I'm sure there was some reflection on this when you're going through hell um, from a a health standpoint, um, what institution do you hope that you leave behind uh, when you're gone?
0: My children, my children. That those that's it. Those are the institutions. I've everything I've ever created still exists. I was help. I was part of helping create AmeriCorps, a national service program that you know, million and a half young people have served in. I the executive search firm that I founded and sold to my people still exists. It's great. They, I've created political action committees, philanthropic giving circles. Those are all institutions. They're not cathedrals because they outlived me. But honestly, my kids. And, and I say my kids like capital K kids, but also all of the people who I've mentored and coached and, 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 and helped in some small way in their lives. Th- that's it. I mean, you know, I, I want my legacy to be uh, uh, any handful or more number of people saying my life was a little bit better because Laura was part of it in some way. And I don't know that any of us can really hope for more than that.
1: I think that's a beautiful place for us to close. Laura, if people want to find out what you're up to, if they want to hire you for their company, if they want to buy the books, um, where's the best place for them to do that?
0: Yeah. So as we mentioned, uh, all my friends call me LGO. So I'm at hey, H-E-Y, L-G-O on all the socials. You can find me there. Um, the book is at wonderhell.com. You can also find it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop if you want to support small, uh, small local independent bookstores. And lauragastnerodding.com gets you to my website.
1: Laura, I am on Twitter at Brian Levinson, LinkedIn at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all of these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. This was a blast. Thank you so much for your energy, your time, and your message. And looking forward to many more conversations with you in the future.
0: Thank you so much, Brian. It's been great fun. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Everything I've ever created still exists. I was helped. I was part of helping create AmeriCorps, a national service program that, you know, a million and a half young people have served in. i the executive search firm that I founded and sold to my people still exists. It's great. they I've created political action committees, philanthropic giving circles. Those are all institutions. They're not cathedrals because they outlived me. But honestly, my kids, and and I say my kids like capital K kids, but also, all of the people who I've mentored and coached and, 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 and helped in some small way in their lives, th- that's it. I mean, you know, I, I want my legacy to be uh, uh, any handful or more, number of people saying my life was a little bit better because Laura was part of it in some way. And I don't know that any of us can really hope for more than that.